Un lasso. Let's practice. As you let your awareness descend into and fill the space of the body, settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. For a little while, calm the discursive mind. By way of mindfulness of breathing, using any of the three methods of your choice to make the mind serviceable. You may count the breaths if you find it helpful.
let's move from this more passive mode of a quiet mindfulness of the in and out breath to the more active discursive mode of meditation where we draw on our abilities of imagination, of intelligence, of memory. Let's begin once again by directing compassion towards ourselves as a wonderful substitute for self-condemnation, self-loathing, self-criticism, self-judgments. Self-compassion is far more fruitful and realistic. In this spirit, bring to mind, if you will, situations in the past, experiences in the past, in which you've suffered mentally, either in solitude or in relationship with other people, other sentient beings. Mental suffering may, may arise while you are engaged with them. It may also arise when the engagement with them comes to an end. Bring to mind the suffering you've experienced. And then ask of yourself, is it true in fact that the suffering, the mental suffering that you have experienced can be traced back to the craving and attachment that you have experienced. And what was the nature of that attachment? Consider the extent of your vulnerability now, that, su su that such suffering is not confined to the past, something you've simply outgrown. But consider that to the extent that your mind is still prone to craving and attachment, you are still vulnerable to the resultant mental suffering. So even while you're enjoying the attachment, the seeds of misery are there, just waiting to germinate. Which means that the pleasure itself must be unsatisfying if it carries such seeds right in its own nature. So rather than condemning yourself, standing in judgment, empathize with yourself 
and if you will, arouse this yearning, this aspiration of compassion. May I be free of suffering, the suffering of change and the underlying cause of attachment and craving. With each in-breath, arouse this yearning. Enjoy the bounties of life without attachment. Enjoy loving relationships with others without attachment. With a mind that is clear and not rooted in delusion. With each in-breath, let your imagination play. Imagine becoming free, not only generically. Imagine being in situations, in relationships, and so on. In which mental suffering easily arises. And imagine being free of the suffering and its underlying cause. Imagine freedom. Imagine leading your life in a world of change where nothing is stable, everything in a state of flux, but not suffering as a result. And the key is simple, by being free of attachment and recognizing the true source of happiness, not in objects, but in your own awareness the depths of your own being.
perhaps you can imagine if you truly dwelt in the world in such a way, fully participating in the world, but without such mental suffering, how much compassion you would feel for all those who are leading their lives, dominated by a craving and attachment, bringing about so much useless and unnecessary suffering. So from this vantage point now, bring to mind another person, or it could be a group of people. Who you know are suffering mentally. Bring them vividly to mind. Let their reality become your reality by attending closely. the yearning with each in-breath. May this person, this community, be free of the suffering of change and the underlying causes. With each in-breath, as you inhale, imagine drawing in their suffering and the underlying cause. And as you draw it in, imagine it simply evaporating, disappearing into nothing.
imagine with each in-breath that the burden of suffering and its underlying causes is alleviated, alleviated to the vanishing point, that it is gone. And imagine this person or these people's relief as such, su as such suffering vanishes. let your attention rove at will, each of us having our own unique meditation. Focus your awareness upon individuals whom you know personally, that you know only indirectly, perhaps by way of the media, to those who experience grief, depression, or loneliness, sadness whole range of mental suffering, to those who are filled with anxiety and fear. Attend closely and practice as before.
but just a very short time, release all appearances and objects of the mind and all aspirations. Withdraw your awareness from all appearances. Let your awareness rest in its own nature, illuminating and knowing itself. Much as these three dimensions of suffering relate very closely to the three poisons of the mind, so latent suffering to anger, suffering of change to attachment, craving, and this ubiquitous suffering or vulnerability to suffering, to delusion, one can also map these three levels of suffering to the three core trainings or modes of practice in Buddhism. And the first of these being, of course, ethics. And the very essence of that being to avoid injury, to avoid violence, to avoid injurious behavior, anything harmful, and to be of service when one can. There is the whole of ethics in the Buddhist understanding. And so if we really embed this in the Buddhist worldview, then the assertion from the Buddha is that all the, all the adversity that we encounter, all the misery, all the physical pain, all the mental pain we, we encounter, that we experience from day to day throughout the course of, of one lifetime and multiple lifetimes, all of this is traced back to unwholesome behavior. So law of karma, that misery comes from unwholesome behavior, non-virtuous behavior. So if one doesn't want the misery, then one can avoid unwholesome behavior, which is to live a, an ethical life. So that clearly, that assertion clearly is embedded in a worldview in which one may or may not have trust or confidence. But one can, to some extent, look at this, the validity of that statement, even in the context of this life. Now, first of all, let's dispense with something that's obviously true. Do good people, do terrible things happen to good people? The answer is, of course, it does. It happens all the time. So within the context of one life, if you lead a very, very virtuous life, a wonderfully ethical life, does this mean that you'll be free of adversity? Well, the answer is flat out no. Not to the Buddha, not to Arhats, not to Jesus, not to Martin Luther King, not to Gandhi. No, it doesn't ha- that's not true. But is it true? Is there a general truth that if our way of engaging with others is benevolent, really rooted in a, in a fundamental aspiration not to harm, to be of service where possible, if that really is core, if that's the, the guiding light to our life, is it likely that people will treat us better? And I think overall the chance is pretty good. On the contrary, if we leave a life of, of animosity, hatefulness, and so forth, then we're just going to get it in the teeth. Nobody will like us. So, they, you know. so that's certainly true. So overall, if we're leading an ethical way of life, then we're, it's just bound to be the case we will meet with more felicity which is kind of common sense. And if we like that, even then with or without belief in the continuity of consciousness, rebirth, and so forth, 
ethics is directly related to a, a greater freedom, a greater freedom from blatant suffering. And then we move to the suffering of change, and now the, the correlation is very strong. Samadhi. Samadhi. Samadhi, when we speak of the higher training of samadhi as this large framework of practice, not just sen sejipa, or single-pointed attention, but dingin lapa, the higher training of samadhi. Well, this is much more than simply shamatha, much more than simply focusing single-pointedly. It really has to do with the cultivation of the four immeasurables, cultivating authentic motivation, cultivating, of course, samadhi, but cultivating overall exceptional mental balance, exceptional mental health, which must entail then less attachment. Because a mind that is driven by attachment is an addictive, obsessive, compulsive, very imbalanced mind. And so the second training is very strongly related to overcoming the suffering of change. And especially if we look at a key element in that, and that is indeed the cultivation of samadhi, cultivation of single-pointed attention, powerful concentration, shamatha, then the correlation becomes really obvious. And that is, the more deeply one becomes immersed in the fine-tuning and the balancing of attention through the cultivation of shamatha, it just comes with the territories. It's quite natural that as you start to experience the serenity, the peacefulness, the soothing quality, and then gradually a sense of well-being, perhaps even a sense of bliss that gradually percolates up, emerges up from this deeper dimension, the substrate consciousness. As you experience that, then it's just natural that you become less fixated on, less craving, less clinging, less attached to these outer shells of people, places, things, and so forth and so on that may or may not catalyze happiness. They may, but no guarantee, right? And so when one is starting to tap into the mother load, it's kind of like if you're a gold miner and you're, you're mining up, up, upstream until you actually hit the vein, the actual vein from which all the little flecks are coming, then will, be, will you be looking for little, you know, pretty little rocks, rocks elsewhere when you've actually tapped into the vein of gold itself? You don't need to look downstream. Why look downstream? It's here. You've tapped into the core, so just keep on digging because you've got to the core. So the Buddha said of the bliss of samadhi, he said, the bliss of samadhi is not to be feared. Interesting statement. He said, the bliss of samadhi is not to be feared. Implying that maybe there are other kinds of blisses that, for which there could be some fear that would be reality-based fear. And that is, if one is, if one is experiencing really bliss, that one's got a lot of money. Oh, man, I am worth so much. I am really important. I got a lot of money. I'm so happy about a lot of money. You might want to fear that one. Because that's just a time bomb just ticking away. What you just got, you're going to lose. It's absolutely certain you're going to lose. You're holding on to it, it will vanish. You're holding on to it, you will vanish. There is no door number three. There's no other option. You will lose that which you're holding on to, thinking, I'm happy, I'm happy, look how rich I am. And whether it's something as crude as just money, or whether it's fame or reputation, and so forth and so on, that bliss, we're right back into it. It's bliss born of attachment. Bliss born of attachment. It's holding the seeds of misery. It's holding the seeds of dukkha right in it. Whereas you, when you're simply resting in the bliss of samadhi, it's not such a time bomb. It's not nirvana. It's not to say free of attachment. But that coarser attachment, it is free of. And moreover, if you taste that, and you have the wisdom to know that the bliss of samadhi is your vehicle, your vehicle to go for a much greater bliss, the bliss of true freedom, then there's nothing to fear in that bliss of samadhi at all. No problem. So, so, samadhi, 
the training of samadhi is directly the antidote for the suffering of change. It's quite clear. It overcomes other kinds of attachments. And then, of course, the training in wisdom, in Pali, sila, sila, samadhi, banya, or in Sanskrit, sila, samadhi, pratnya. Wisdom, of course, is the antidote, and it's the only antidote for the deepest dimension of suffering that we'll attend to tomorrow. So, interesting mapping on of those three as well. So, there's a, there's a question here, but I'd like to start out with any verbal comments, questions, insights, anything you'd like to share. Yes, we'll start with Chaktur. Um, I'll let you say your own name, but I will say it. Chaktur, and right over here. Thank you. Chakdur. Yes, and you. the question is, uh, what's the difference between desire without attachment and uh, motivation? And? Motivation. Kunlong. Oh, uh, motivation. Motivation, yes. Um, desire does not always entail motivation. So the kunlong, the Tibetan word kunlong, is an interesting word. Kun means total and long means to, to, to arise. To arise. So kunlong, motivation, implies some motion towards, that is, one is going to do something, one is going to go on a vacation, get a job, become a monk, not become a monk, whatever, but it entails some action, some action. It could be the action of going into retreat and practicing shamatha all day. That, too, is a type of behavior. And so motivation is always linked with some type of action, chawa, action. And it is that which is arousing, gun long, it is that which totally arouses, activates, catalyzes, sets in motion our activity, right? For whatever it is. So for any intentional action, now some of our actions are unintentional, but for the intentional actions, and there are many, there is always some motivation. There's something that arouses. Now, desire is not necessarily linked to motivation. It often is. But one may desire something uh, for which no strategy, no plan, no course of action comes to mind. All right? For example, if one is ill, one may... I have a, I have a friend who had a, a back injury a long time ago, and it's chronic pain. Chronic pain. Right? And so I'm sure this person would, really, would desire to be free of suffering, free of the back pain. But as far as I know, the last time I spoke with him, there is no treatment for it. It's one of the things he may have to live with the sheer physical pain. So would he like that physical pain to be gone? Yeah. But is there any method? Not that we know of. So the desire is there, but there's no gunlong, there's no motivation. What to do? Nothing can be done. Right? So I would say motivation always entails a desire. And it may be an unwholesome, migewa, unwholesome motivation. I want to harm someone. That's my motivation. I'm going to speak to this person in a really mean, abusive way. So there's a motivation. It can be neutral. It can be wholesome. Always oriented to, to some action. Right? Desire also can be wholesome, neutral, unwholesome. Not necessarily related to action. And then there's attachment, which is always rooted in delusion. And attachment, too, doesn't necessarily imply a motivation. One may be attached to... For example, uh, I could be... Let's imagine I'm a real nationalist, an American nationalist, thinking America's number one America is the greatest country in the world. 
we should be, we should have more money, we should have a bigger millet, blah, blah, blah. So really strong attachment to, I'm American, Americans number one, right? Big attachment. There's no motivation there. I'm not going to do anything. I might get angry if somebody says, Americans stink and burns a flag. Then I might get really ex excited and really upset. I could be attached to my religion. And if somebody burns a Dhammapada, you know, I might be upset. Or I might recognize they're just burning paper. Get over it. So attachment doesn't necessarily imply motivation. So, an but, and so desire doesn't necessarily imply attachment or motivation. Motivation necessarily implies desire, but not necessarily attachment. Attachment necessarily implies desire, but not motivation. So, musumre. Musumre. That's interesting. Yeah. Anything else coming up? Also from your meditation or from the... Yes. So we'll start from Hagai. 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 Yeah, Hagai. Uh, regarding the practice of settling the mind, right. uh, in the context of uh, this practice, what is this mind? Aha, good. So, so everybody understand the question. When you're settling the mind in its natural state and you're attending to what is the object, one can say very briefly, the object is the mind. What is it? What's the referent of that term mind? When you say, I'm looking at the mind. So it's a good, solid, uh, very fundamental question. First of all, let's look at the term itself. This one practice, the same practice, is called by different names. So I've been calling it by one of its names, settling the mind in its natural state. So let's look at that. So we'll see how this one word mind has sometimes different reference. It has different meanings. Right? So what does it mean to settle the mind in its natural state? Okay? So you're a young man, young man from Israel. Um, and you have your own unique background, your own unique history, and so forth. Your hopes, your desires, your imagination for the future. And so that's your mind. That's your mind. And it has many things, many memories, anticipations, certain strengths, probably certain uh, weaknesses or limitations also. Some virtues, maybe some mental afflictions. So, and from one person to the next, one person's mental affliction may be of one kind very strong, another person not so strong. So, so a lot of variety. And so that whole array of modes of consciousness, of mental impulses, habits, mental faculties, as an umbrella term, something that covers the whole. Like we say, a community, the community, or all the, the, the community who came, the people who came to this retreat. Well, that's a lot of different people, but we'll use this one, the people, and then it covers all of them, even though they're very, very different, right? So the mind now, it's, a one, it's the mind, it's singular, like this group of people is one group of people, but nevertheless, the referent is, in fact, many, many people or many, many mental processes. When the mind is settled in its natural state, then these very familiar mental processes, including visual perception. See, my visual perception, as I gaze at you, this is human. If I were a dog, I'd see something different. A bumblebee, a bat, a cockroach. Because their vi visual cortices are different, their eyes are different, and so forth. So I'm already having an anthropocentric view of you as I'm looking at you with human eyeballs, human visual cortex. And of course, the same thing for all of the five physical senses. They're, they're human physical senses. They're not just generic, specifically human. Different species and you know, devas and pretas and so forth see differently. So this uniquely, this human 
and uniquely individual array of sensory perceptions and modes of mental activity. When you're settling the mind in its natural state, in the course of that practice, it dissolves. And the word is bapa, sem neldu bapa. Sem, the mind, bapa descends, nel, to its natural state, its unconfigured state. So nowadays, many people are using computer analogies, so I'll go along with it. It's like a configured disk or a configured hard drive. It's specifically configured. This is a Macintosh configured. This is a PC configured. This disk is configured for music. This disk looks just the same. It's configured for photos. That's what's, that's, you know, it's configured that way. And so right now, your mind, your consciousness is very strongly configured. Human physical senses, human language processing, human, human, human. But now when you settle the mind in its natural state, that human quality that is distinctively human, that's dissolving. And then among human beings, there are seven billion of them, of, of us, your uniquely human mind dissolving, melting. So if you think of your mind as being like a snowflake, they say every snowflake is unique. Your mind is unique. In the whole universe, there's no one that has a mind identical to yours. And that's a very certain statement. Just for starters, nobody is sitting right where you are right now, except you. That means it's already unique, right? And so that uniqueness, human uniqueness, right? Hagai uniqueness, it's dissolving. So your senses, your, your human senses, dissolving into mental consciousness. Within mental consciousness, those distinctively human and distinctively hagaiish mental processes, dissolving, dissolving, melting, melting, so that snowflake that was unique is now just melting into a drop of water. And if you've seen one drop of water, you've seen them all. Right? Just what's the difference? If it's water, it's water. And that's it. And water is H2O. And when your mind dissolves, it's bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. If you're lucidly there, otherwise you're just deep asleep. So that mind then has dissolved, and the coarse mind has dissolved into subtle mind, which is also, also called substrate consciousness. So that's one way of understanding mind. That is, you lose your mind, but then you get it back. You lose your mind every time you fall asleep, into dreamless sleep, you lose your mind. You lose your mind every time you die, and you don't get that one back, you get another one. And so there's one meaning of the word mind. Now, this practice is also called semlamibeshine, semlamibeshine, in the Galupa tradition, much more commonly known, semlamibeshine, shamatha focused on the mind. And I think this was really more closer to your question. We're attending to the mind. Well, now more specifically, what are we attending to? We're, spending, we're attending to a domain of experience. Shamatha is always selective. This practice is not open awareness. It is not choiceless awareness. Those suggest openness to all appearances arising. This is not. This is not equally interested in visual and auditory and mental. It's interested in only one out of six modes of experience, only interested in that which is just mental, right? So it's selective, and it's taking no interest in any of the five fields, other, other five sensory fields. I'll just mention it as a sidelight. Once again, why is the practice of the simple practice that we've done so far, why is this not Dzogchen? Because it's not. It's a shamatha practice. Anybody can do it. A Theravada can do it. A Christian can do it. A Hindu can do it. An atheist can do it. They're not all practicing Dzogchen. They're just practicing shamatha. There is no worldview that is necessary. There is no worldview in which shamatha must be embedded. Shamatha floats. Shamatha floats. You can be religious, not religious, theistic, non-theistic, polytheistic, atheistic, still practice shamatha. 
So there is no worldview that's required for the shamatha practice. You can just do it as a psychological practice. So Dzogchen, in utter contrast to that, there is no such thing as Dzogchen meditation. And I'll say this with total confidence, and I'll show you all my sources. This is not a debatable point. My opinions are totally debatable. This is not, a, not an opinion. It's not debatable. There is no such thing as Dzogchen meditation without Dzogchen view. It does not exist. There is no, and there is no such thing as Dzogchen meditation without Dzogchen way of life. So those three, view, meditation, way of life, they come together. You get one, you get them all. But you can't take one out and leave the other two. Then it's no longer Dzogchen. Then it's, and, and if we take an example, this is straight from Jujum Lingba, extraordinary 19th century Dzogchen master. It's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's meaningful. And that is, you have no Dzogchen view. You just say, I'm just going to sit here and practice open presence. Anybody can do that. But you don't even have to be human. Marmots do it. And this is what Jujum Lingba calls it. It's marmot, marmot meditation. A marmot nice, on a nice spring day finds a nice warm rock in the sunshine and sits out there and goes, They're not practicing Dzogchen. They're practicing choiceless awareness. They're just sitting there. Open awareness, that's very good. Choiceless awareness, yep. Open, open presence, yep. But it's not Dharma. It's not Dzogchen. It's not Shamatha. It's not Vipassana. It's Marmot. Enjoying a hot, sunny day and just being openly present with it. So... On the surface, that can look like Dzogchen, but there, and, and the term open presence, or actually it's just, well, that would be another whole conversation, and your question still lingers. So we'll get to that later, but just open presence. One can be openly present as a marmot, or simply as a person, date, you know, just hanging out on the beach. And it's not Dzogchen. Dzogchen must entail view, meditation, way of life, and they're thoroughly, inextricably integrated for it to be authentic Dzogchen practice. Right. So, this is called... So, the settling the mind in this natural state certainly does not Im, uh, imply or require a Dzogchen view. One may do a very similar practice embedded in Dzogchen view, and this practice or something very similar to it can then be Dzogchen meditation. But I've not taught it thus far as Dzogchen meditation. There was no view. I, I have not ta- spoken about the one taste of samsara and nirvana and really unpacked the Dzogchen view. Just, here's the practice. This is to dissolve your mind into the substrate consciousness. But now, what are we attending to? Well, by a process of elimination, we are not attending to the visual field or any of the other four sensory fields. They arise, but we're not paying any attention. We don't deliberately focus on them. They, they happen, whatever. We just release. And so we're focusing on a domain of experience in which uniquely mental events, such as discursive thoughts, mental images, arise. So where is it? Well, I would say wherever mental events arise. So come back to my own old icon, if I invite you, and I've invited a number of you, I'm sure to do this, visualize Mickey Mouse on top of my head. The visualized Mickey Mouse that you visualize, that you bring to mind, that Mickey Mouse, can you do it right now if you wish? Podcast, you'll have a harder time. <laughs> but you know, if you visualize a nice little happy Mickey Mouse on top of my head, that image of Mickey Mouse that you're bringing to mind exists where? Not in the physical space above my head. Because you could bring all kinds of physical in- instrument here and see, is there any increasing density of molecules or anything else in this little space above my head? And the answer is, don't think so. I'm not feeling it. 
right? So where is that image? Where is that image of Mickey Mouse located? Because it's located someplace, right above my head. And where is that? In the space of your mind. It's in the domain of your mind. It's not in the visual space. You can't see it with the eyes. It's not physical. It's completely non-physical. That Mickey Mouse doesn't have a molecule in it, right? He has color, he has shape, but no materiality and no physicality whatsoever. So that Mickey Mouse you're visualizing there, or if you're doing a mandala, you're doing stage regeneration, you might visualize something more noble than Mickey Mouse and more blissful even than Mickey Mouse, you know, who lives in the happiest place in the world, but pure lands are even better. You know? And so if you're visualizing you know, yourself as... as, as a deity, a yidam, you're visualizing a mandala. You're visualizing all the, 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 the array around the mandala. You're visualizing a seed syllable inside your heart, and so forth and so on. Everything you're visualizing inside your body, above your body, around your body, all of that is appearing in the space of the mind. So wherever there are mental events, like a mental image, wherever there's a thought, wherever there's an emotion, wherever there's a dream, all of these purely mental events are taking place in the space of the mind. So it's a, it's a domain of experience, but it doesn't have any physical location. It's not in front of you. It's not inside your heart. It's not inside your head. It's not inside anything physical. It's not outside anything physical either. It's not physical. Therefore, the space of the mind has no physical location. No physical location. So I look over at, at Mark's shirt. He's wearing a yellow shirt. The shirt is located over there. It's made of molecules. So to say the obvious, the, co the yellow color of the shirt that I perceive, the yellow color is not in the nature of the molecules. Molecules are not yellow. Electrons are not yellow. Protons are not yellow. The photons being emitted from the shirt are not yellow. They're colorless. My retina doesn't turn yellow, nor does the optic nerve, nor, nor does the visual cortex turn yellow. So there's nothing objectively that's yellow, purely objectively, absolutely out there. There's nothing in between that's yellow, and there's nothing inside my head that's yellow either. Yellow does exist. And where does yellow exist? In the space of awareness. In the visual space, which is a subspace of space of awareness. Subspace. That's a visual domain. But it's not located in physical space. It's quite interesting. It looks like it is, but it's not. Appearances don't exist in physical space. They exist in the, in the space of awareness, and the space of awareness has six rooms, and one is purely mental. So when you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state, you're attending to that one domain that is only mental, and, and wherever, in front of you, below you, to left, right, what have you, big, small, microscopic, any mental event is arising in the space of the mind. You attend to that space, and by a process of elimination, that's the easiest way. That's why I gave you the guided tour. Attend to the visual, the auditory, the tactile, and now what's left over. What else is now appearing directly to your awareness? Thoughts, images, for example. So that those exist in the space of the mind. So you're attending to the space of the mind, and then you're attending to any mental event. Some arising more objectively, like mental images, discursive thoughts. Some arising more subjectively, like desires, emotions, intentions. But we are immediately aware of them. We know them. We don't infer. We don't infer our emotions. I don't have to look at my face and say, oh, I must be angry because I noticed that, that my facial expression just looked like exactly what Paul Ekman said an angry face looked like. You know, we don't have to infer our emotions, we don't have to infer our desires by watching our behavior. You can be sitting totally motionless, as you all know by now, and experience a wide range of desires and intentions and emotions, and there's no behavioral correlate at all. 
Brain correlates, yes. Behavioral correlates, you're sitting there like a stump. So for a behavioral psychologist, you become extremely boring. Because you're just, just sitting there. And there's a world of stuff happening, and, and the behavioral psychologist is completely out of the picture. Like, let me in, do something so I can draw some inferences. You know? Meditators are intrinsically boring to a behaviorist. Except how odd that one would become a, behavior, become a meditator. While the meditator is thinking, how odd to become a behaviorist. <laughs> so, one is attending to the space of the mind and then whatever arises within it. And when one is attending to the space of the mind and whatever mental events arise in it, that's called attending to the mind. Because the mind is nothing other than the space of the mind and all the mental events taking place within it. Okay? So that's the answer. Okay, good. Now I think I'll go ahead and read one. Don't want to delay it too long. Here's a, yeah, one pager. I think I recognize the handwriting. Anonymous, please, can do. I, in fact, I had no choice. So thank you for your patient, clear, and inspiring responses to my, and all, previous questions. Thank you. Particularly regarding the poetic tap on the shoulder. I'm kicking myself that I didn't see that myself. But as an arhat is free of karma and klesha, by what process they come back in order to continue on their path to Buddhahood? Oh, yeah. So, of course, there are different schools here, and I don't want to pretend that you know, all of Buddhism just has one worldview and only one view and so forth. Not true. Theravada, on this point in particular, the Theravada Buddhism uh, takes a very different position uh, and, and cleaving uniquely, that is solely to the Pali Canon. And there's no reference in the Pali Canon. That is, the teachings of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon. There's no reference. I'm, I'm sure there's no reference whatsoever to any arhat, a person who has achieved arhatship, then coming back sometime later and taking rebirth again. The whole idea is you become a stream enter, a once returner, a non-returner, an arhat. You've already passed the, the, the point of no return. You're, you're a non-returner. Then when you achieve arhatship, you're, just, you're, you're never coming back. And the whole idea is that you do utterly vanish from the world of change completely vanish from the world of change. That is your whole, and again, by and large, the Buddha would respond with noble silence to what happens to an arhat after death. But now on the main computer in the library, I've given the exact source of the, in the Pali Canon where the Buddha does speak of this unconditioned, unborn consciousness that is present after the death of an arhat. Uh, but the notion from the Theravada perspective, from the Pali Canon, there's just no coming back. You have now gone to the unconditioned. You've transcended. You've gone from samsara to nirvana. It's a one-way track. You'll never come back. You don't want to come back. And before you go, you wish everybody else well and do as much benefit as you can. And it's quite interesting that some of the arhats would then really extend themselves. They would go out and teach. They would engage in various activities to really help others find a way out of suffering. And others wouldn't. Others wouldn't. They would, just, they would just remain in solitude, enjoy their ship, and then die. So the fact of being an arhat doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be going out there and really trying to alleviate the suffering of others in any explicit fashion. There were cases, I mean, to be very blunt, there were cases, this is not part of the, uh, the happy PR for the Theravada tradition or the Pali Canon, but there, there were those who achieved arhatship and then just took their own lives. Took their own lives, you know, why hang around? I got this chunk of this chunk of the five skandhas. I got this crappy body left over from past karma. I'm in this world of change. My mind now is free of mental afflictions, but why on earth should I sh hang out here? 
there's no reason to stay. And, they would, and it would say they would use the knife. You know, it would say, I'm, I'm finished. And good luck, everybody. I found my way. There's the Buddha. Go for it. But I'm out of here. And be gone. So not exactly a compassionate action, but actually not condemned. Not condemned. It's interesting. So that's part of why I don't take that as the ideal for myself. That, you know, the ultimate goal is simply to vanish, have an irreversible, absolute, eternal vanishing act from the whole world of change, where everybody else lives. You know? um, that is the view in the Theravada, and I understand it, and I would certainly rather not suffer than suffer. And that's the, the trajectory from suffering to non-suffering, and to a state that is transcendent and immutable, unconditioned, nirvana. But from the Mahayana perspective, as I mentioned before, that is considered to be not a terminus, not a final outcome, when they indeed become an arhat, which means that all of your mental afflictions have been purified, the continuum of your five skandhas, which arose independence upon prior kleshas, mental afflictions, and karma, they're extinguished, they are exhausted, and you never ever accumulate any more karma. You have no more kleshas. Therefore, because you have no kleshas, you don't accumulate any more karma, propulsive karma to throw you into future lifetimes. So if you're an arhat, you're never propelled you're never thrown. That's the word pempa, penchekile. You're never thrown into any existence thereafter. And so why would you ever come back? And it would be for two reasons. And again, this, this very metaphoric tapping on the shoulder, poetic tapping on the shoulder. Um, why come back? Because there is some implicit, some quiet whispering voice. And again, all I can speak is, is in poetry. Of course it's poetry that there's something within one that knows not finished. I've not yet, it's not finished. This is not the end. This is not the culmination. I've not realized who I am fully. I've not fathomed the nature of reality. Obscurations are still to be dispelled. The klesha avarana, nyomongidipa, klesha, the whole range of klesha, all finished. But from the Mahayana perspective, there's another whole dimension of obscurations that even an arhat is not free of. And there would be some implicit awareness of that. There are still veils. Even though you're totally immersed in nirvana, there's some veils. Why is the, the, the full potential of your dharmakaya, your Buddha nature, why is it not manifesting in the world? Because of these obscurations. It's called nyaya avarana. Nyaya avarana. Obscurations to knowledge are obscurations to the full knowledge of a Buddha. Obscurations that still are limiting, impairing, shrouding the, the limitless virtues the boundless virtues of a Buddha. So it would be coming from some awareness within that there are still obscurations, there's still more to be done, and there may also be a stirring. I really I can only use my imagination here. But there must be some implicit awareness that there's a world of, sen of sentient beings out there whose suffering is very real. And you're not doing them any good. You're not doing them any good at all. You know? And so for two reasons. It's called founder and gender. Your own, your own interest, become a Buddha. Others' interest, there's a world of suffering out there. And so the axis shifts, and by these, not by the power of klesha, not by the power of karma, but by some impotence, some movement within one's deepest dimension of one's awareness, recognizing there's more to be done. And for that, you need to, be, you need to come back to the world of change. You develop compassion not by dwelling in nirvana. You develop compassion by attending to sentient beings. And that compassion has to be 
not only limitless compassion, which an arhat might have, but great compassion. Maha karuna, nyingje chambu. Arhat doesn't have that. But that is part of the potential of Buddha nature. Great compassion, in which one takes upon oneself the responsibility to alleviate all sentient beings of all suffering. Arhat doesn't have that resolve. A bodhisattva does. And that's the fundamental difference. And this means the, the, the bodhisattva's tasks, the bodhisattva's return, whether manifesting as a, as a bodhisattva, manifesting as a Buddha, even after Buddhahood, there is no end until all suffering is finished. So for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long shall I remain for the alleviation of suffering of the world. The Dalai Lama's central prayer, the prayer of the bodhisattva. That's why one comes back. It's out of compassion. Can you please list and describe the internal factors necessary for shamatha? Oh, I won't do that. I'll just direct you to... Uh, well, maybe I will. But the, 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 there are many classic sources, and I've drawn from the classic sources, and they're laid out very clearly in the Attention Revolution. And maybe just so you have it right on tap, I think I will, especially if I'm, re I'm reminded, I'll put also just my standard notes for a one-week shamatha retreat, which I've taught now I don't know how many times. But that has, has all of that in there, the nine stages and the three methods and the five obscurations and the internal factors, the external factors, everything's there in my one-week shamatha retreat, which I just finished leading in Australia a couple of weeks back. So I think I'll post those. I'll post those as well. So if you just want to get a refresher, just see it in, in nutshell version, outline form, don't have to look through the whole book, Attention Revolution, it's there. But the causes, the internal causes, sure. Contentment. Contentment. The inter there are very important external causes, but that's not the question. The internal causes are contentment. Contentment means that you are content with what you do have. So if you just have a little, a little room, one-room cabin, you're content with that. You're not thinking of a two-room cabin or a nicer cabin or a cabin with electricity or with central heating or with a toilet and so forth. And your food is just mostly rice and dal. Oh, it's good rice and dal. I have plenty of rice and dal. I'm very content, you know. So you're content with what you have. Your clothing, your food, your lodging, you're content. With what you have, your desires are filled. Right? You have your practice. So that's one contentment. De chung. One at first is chokche, and then de chung, de ve chung chung, de ve nyung, de nyung, having few desires. So contentment is focusing on what you do have and being content with, with, with that. And having few desires is focusing on what you don't have and not desiring. So it's looking outside. What more could I have? Oh, I wish I had that. I had that. And so having a lot of desires is attending to what you don't have and wishing you did have it. And so contentment is focusing on what you do have and having few desires is not desiring what you don't have. So they're flip sides of the same coin, but they do have a different kind of valence to them, a different quality to them. And if one doesn't have contentment and if one does have a lot of external desires, then you can put your body in solitude and your mind won't be. It'll be roving all over the place. You'll never get down. You'll never settle down. And I've known people like that. I mean, in a way, very earnest. Spent time in retreat. But all the time, there's these desires going on. And they, and they, they haven't been able to release them. They're always, oh, 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 something I don't have. Oh, oh, I wish I had a partner. I wish I had this. I wish I had, I wish I had more financial security. Oh, I wish, I wish I had a better place to meditate. I wish, I wish, I wish. And that's got lots of luck. It doesn't matter how, skill, how intelligent you are how skillful you are in terms of sheer technique, if there's still that underlying turbulence of having desires and a lack of contentment, then as, as Atisha says, you can meditate for a thousand years. 
and you'll never achieve shanti. Not even if you live a thousand years, you won't achieve it. So those two, those two. And then, having few concerns and few activities. Few concerns, few activities. And that is if you're checking out the internet, if you need to keep on managing your stock portfolio, if you're meeting a lot of people on the phone, internet, having to make a living, having to do a lot of different things, and being concerned about a lot of different things, that would be just about impossible. Because every time you get quiet, then all the things you have to do and all the concerns you have will just be cropping up, flooding your space of your awareness, and you'll never be able to get composed. This is why solitude is so important and a radical simplification of lifestyle for a while. And that is for a while. It's like going, it's like quarantining yourself. It's like going to a, a mental rehabilitation place. So for a while, radically simplify, get your mind superbly balanced, and then you can come back. Then you can come back to the world of diversity because you're bringing a profoundly sane mind to it, and it should not erode. But for some time, as if like mental rehabilitation, for a while, until you get the job done, radically simplify. So then it did it. Then Sutanamadapa, that is maintaining very pure ethics, really with body, speech, and mind, and avoiding injurious behavior, engaging in benevolent behavior, that's crucial, indispensable. And then I think there's only one more that I can think of right now. Oh, in a way, it's the most difficult. It just rolls off the tongue. Completely dispensing with compulsive ideation around desires and so on. So you get that one done, and pretty much then you'll achieve shamatha, if you can handle that one. And that is, as you're sitting quietly, watching your breath or what have you, if you can just completely release, completely release, just completely let go. And so it's, again, it's completely releasing the fixation on hedonic, pursuit of hedonic pleasures, and, and saying, okay, now I'm going to go, I'm going to put my, all of my investments, all of my investments in the portfolio of genuine happiness. For the time being, I'm not going to give any concern, and I'm not going to give any activity, any effort to pursuing hedonic. There may come time for that later, but not now. Now it's 100 investment. And so if shamatha flops, I'm going to go bankrupt. <laughs> but it shouldn't. Practice well, and it's meaningful every day. And this is a crucial point, and I think I'll end on this point. Unless there's a quick question here. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to get to the five jhana factors tomorrow, so there'll be more left over. But this is a very crucial point for shamatha. Extremely important. And that is, on the one hand, we have these nine stages. And it's very good to learn about them. It's very, very helpful. They're meant to be helpful, to show us road marks on the path, and so they can really be worth their weight in gold. On the one hand. On the other hand, if they're taken as goals, then you turn the medicine into poison. And if you're sitting there, in, let's say, in retreat, like in this one, and then if you're thinking, this eight-week retreat, or you go into a six-month retreat, an open-ended retreat, if you're thinking, my time here in retreat, my time devoting to shamatha, I'm waiting to see whether this is beneficial. I'm waiting to see whether this was time well spent. I'm waiting to see whether this is meaningful. So I'm hoping, but let's see. Thinking, you know, how far will I get? This will be a good retreat if I can get to stage four. But if I can't get to stage four in two, two, two months, then bummer, I wish I hadn't come. You know, If one is having this attitude of waiting to see whether the practice is meaningful or not, you may as well quit. You've got it wrong. You've got it fundamentally wrong. 
The practice of shamatha is from the moment to moment to moment to be as sane as you possibly can be. Relaxed, composed, clear, motivation of benevolence. Every single moment is meaningful. If it has a, a genuine motivation, meaningful motivation, renunciation is good, bodhicitta is even better. If your motivation is sound, if it's authentic, every moment is meaningful and you don't have to wait. Every moment of being relaxed, composed, clear, focused is meaningful regardless of what happens three seconds later. You could die of a stroke three, three seconds later. Still, that was a great way to go out. You know? And so this is really important that you're taking satisfaction and you're knowing this is meaningful right now and I don't have to wait to see about any imagined benefits, whether they're going to happen. The way to get those benefits is to be as sane as you can right in the present moment and not be hoping and fearing about what's going to happen in the future. It's only a distraction. It's only a distraction. So there it is. Benevolent motivation, meaningful motivation, practice. You don't have to wait for anything. And whether it takes a, a long time or a short time, whether there are many obstacles or few obstacles, if you don't feel this is already meaningful, then I think you should re either reflect more deeply or find some other practice. Start reciting a mantra, doing some discursive practice, or what have you. If you can't see that this is already meaningful, and if you can see it's meaningful, you can take satisfaction in it immediately. And know, and then we have this term, shine dupa, shine dupa. It can be translated in two different ways. It's translated, achieving shamatha. Achieving shamatha, remember? And so, if a person has practiced, let's say a year, 18 months or whatever, practicing very diligently, progressing along nine stages, and the person fully achieves shamatha, what that person would say is, I finished accomplishing shamatha. I went through all the nine stages. My mind rests in the substrate consciousness. I'm experiencing the, the, the post-meditative benefits, the meditative benefits. I'm a happy camper. I achieved what I set out to achieve. I've achieved shamatha. I've finished achieving shamatha. But now I've finished achieving it. I was achieving it. Now I've finished achieving it. I did it. It's accomplished. Feta accompli. Right? But now you can take a person, let's say, in the second month, like your second month here, and I, like, and I could interview any of you, any of you. Lizzie, what are you doing? And if I ask you, Keren Karishigewa, what are you doing in Tibetan? You would say, What are you doing? I'm achieving shamatha. That's what I'm doing. Now, how long, when can I say that I will have finished achieving shamatha? I don't know yet. But I'm achieving shamatha. That's what I'm doing. Six hours a day, seven hours a day. I'm and my whole lifestyle is I'm achieving shamatha. So you're in process. You're on that path. You're not waiting for something else to happen. You're doing it now. It's the same verb. So I'm practicing shamatha. I'm achieving shamatha. It's the same word. I'm achieving shamatha. And that's meaningful. It's already meaningful. I mean, you can tell my conviction there is 100%. You don't have to wait for some future benefit accomplishment to see whether it's meaningful already. And if it's not, then go back to your motivation or reassess the practice or shift the practice. Find something you really think is meaningful because life is way too short to wait for meaning to happen later and then be hoping and fearing that it will or will not happen. Right? So it's a very important point. Right now, as we're starting this retreat, it's really crucial. Every day, you're achieving shamatha. Every day, you're achieving. You're, every day, you are realizing deepening loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, and you don't have to wait. 
You don't have to think, how long will it be before I've achieved boundless loving kindness? How many, you know, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? How many months? How many days? How many years do I have to wait? Those are silly questions. If you're cultivating, it's already in your life. Mazel tov. Congratulations. Your life is already meaningful. And then you can make it more meaningful in myriad ways. I'm never suggesting that just the practices I'm teaching are the only ones. That's absurd. But these are meaningful practices. So there we are. Olaso, there's a question about the five dhyana factors, but we'll get to those tomorrow. And I think that's it. So enjoy your evening, and I'll see you tomorrow morning.